Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Today, we're going to go micro on one of mid-century Hollywood's most enduring icons, Audrey Hepburn. When you hear that name, Breakfast at Tiffany's may be the first movie to come to mind, or maybe it's Funny Face featuring the gammon Audrey dancing with Fred Astaire, or maybe My Fair Lady, the ultimate makeover movie in which part of the charm is watching this slip of a girl disappear into the bustling period gowns and under Cecil Beaton's giant hats. Or maybe it's another movie. After making her Hollywood debut with Roman Holiday in 1953, Hepburn only starred in 18 films, but an alarming number of them have become classics. Or maybe you know Audrey Hepburn. You know what she looked like. You have an idea of her beauty and her style. You have an image in your head of her and all of her glorious contradictions, the glamorous waif, the kooky little girl playing dress-up in a slinky black cocktail dress. But you're not exactly sure where that image comes from. There's so much Audrey floating around in popular culture even still today, 60 years after the dawn of her fame, that it's possible to think you know Audrey Hepburn without really knowing anything about her movies at all. Today, we're going to focus primarily on one of her earliest movies, Billy Wilder's 1954 romantic comedy, Sabrina. Sabrina was Hepburn's second Hollywood film, and it's a crucial and often overlooked building block of Audrey's unique star persona. It was the project which first united Hepburn with fashion designer Hubert Givenchy, with whom the actress would develop a muse-slash-fashion mentor relationship that would last throughout her life and career. It was the film on which Hepburn first had an affair with a co-star, an affair which affirmed her maternal instincts and off-screen desire for domesticity. And, most importantly... It was the first film in which we see Audrey Hepburn made over from a normal girl into an incredibly glamorous, implicitly sexual object, without sacrificing the independent spirit and pre-sexual precociousness that would make her an icon for girls for decades to come. Her proven ability to have it both ways was groundbreaking. And this duality introduced in Sabrina would become the underpinning of the much more iconic Breakfast at Tiffany's a few years later. Join us, won't you, for the story of Audrey Hepburn in the 1950s, Sex, Style, and Sabrina. Be kind to your mind with guided meditations from the Meditation for Women podcast. Your mental health benefits from sleeping better, releasing anxiety, and gaining clarity, all of which are benefits of meditation. And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, give yourself the gift of meditations. All you have to do is press play and close your eyes. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.
Audrey Hepburn's mother was a baroness, descended from old-school Dutch nobility, meaning she had a title but no money. Her father had a good name. Hepburn had connotations of British aristocracy, but he had no steady source of income. And anyway, he was gone by the time Audrey was six. Audrey was almost incredibly given her star image, described as a plump child. She thinned out thanks to two defining aspects of her adolescence— Ballet, to which Audrey became devoted at age 12, and World War II. The latter severely impinged her progress in the former. Audrey spent the war, which began when she was 10, with her mother and other family members in the town of Arnhem, just a few miles on the Dutch side of the German border. Audrey later claimed to have carried messages for the resistance, and at one point, she was rounded up with a bunch of other women and children who were to be forced into laboring in a German kitchen— but she managed to escape. Dance, at first, was an avenue for relief and distraction from these kinds of threats. But as the war dragged on, food became extremely scarce. Audrey simply wasn't able to eat enough. She suffered from malnutrition, jaundice, anemia, and edema. She was so weak at times that it was a challenge to walk, let alone dance, and she had to quit ballet. By the end of the war, Audrey was 16 years old, Five foot seven, and she weighed 90 pounds. The British soldiers who sped into her town on a cloud of tobacco smoke and petrol fumes heralding liberation gave her seven chocolate bars. She ate them all at once and was sick for days. The war had spanned the length of her puberty, and during this crucial time, her body didn't get the nutrients necessary to support proper development. Her metabolism would be permanently affected. Her weight would go up and down to some extent, but it was like her body never got used to the idea of plentiful food, and at her heaviest, she topped out at 110 pounds, which would be considered clinically way underweight for a woman of her height today. But of course, nowadays, way underweight is valued in terms of fashion and beauty standards and even expectations in a way that it wasn't then. After the war, Audrey moved to London to try to resume her ballet studies, but she soon had to face facts. Too much time had passed during the war, and she was now too old and too tall to dance at a high level. She got a few chorus line jobs, modeled a bit, and appeared in a few British movies. While shooting one of those movies in Monte Carlo, she was spotted by the writer Colette, whose novella Gigi was being adapted for Broadway by screenwriter Anita Luz. At virtually the same time, Audrey was asked to do a screen test for the American director William Wyler, who was looking for a girl without an American accent who he could cast as a European princess in a frothy romance called Roman Holiday. The essentially unknown Hepburn landed both parts. She was soon on an ocean liner to New York, The first place she was taken off the boat was to Richard Avedon's studio, where she was photographed for Harper's Bazaar. The next stop was a World Series game at Yankee Stadium. Audrey had never seen a baseball game before and had no idea what was going on, but ever the good sport, she played along. It's difficult to overestimate the extent to which Audrey Hepburn repped a completely new look for her time. Cecil Beaton said that no one looked like her before World War II, except for maybe the odd French Revolution waif. But soon after her arrival in the zeitgeist, 
Suddenly there were thousands of imitators. The woods, Beaton wrote, are full of emaciated young ladies with rat-nibbled hair and moon-pale faces. It's also important to note that she came to Hollywood with her own innate sense of style. The gammon haircut wasn't something imposed on her by a Svengali or a studio, and her unusually gangly frame was not something any tastemaker at that time would have dictated. Hepburn said that she had hoped that she would grow up to look like Elizabeth Taylor and had been disappointed when that hadn't happened. But to girls who went to the movies and consumed ladies and fan magazines, she was delightful. To the average girl who hadn't filled out in the Taylor mode and who maybe even felt betrayed when Liz grew up from the plucky horse lover of National Velvet into the bombshell to beat all bombshells, Audrey's style and physique were considered accessible. Where the sex goddesses looked like they did nothing all day long but lie around and wait for a man to come along and desire them, Audrey looked, as feminist film critic Molly Haskell put it, alert. She was described as fully unpretentious, incredibly easy to be around. Gregory Peck said that her only flaw was that she had no dark side. At the beginning of her stardom, off-screen, Audrey played the part of the career girl who was taking a few years for herself before settling down. She had been engaged to a rich British guy, James Hansen, for two years. She broke off their engagement between the stage run of Gigi and the filming of Roman Holiday, claiming that she was too busy to think about marriage. In fact, Paramount had advised her not to get married, especially not to a nobody, if what she really wanted was a big film career. And then at a dinner party at Gregory Peck's place, Audrey met the actor-slash-director Mel Ferrer. Ferrer had started the La Jolla Playhouse Theater Company with Peck and a number of other Hollywood actors. He had been the first director signed to a contract by Howard Hughes at RKO. And when he met Audrey, Ferrer had just starred opposite Leslie Caron in the throffy musical Lily. Audrey had loved that film so much that she had maybe fallen a little bit in love with Mel as a fan before they ever met in real life. Mel was, at the time, on his third marriage to a woman he had once divorced in order to take his second wife, only to remarry the first wife after the second marriage broke up. Audrey was young and girlish, but she had a certain European sophistication. James Hansen had regularly spent the night with Audrey, with her mother encouraging the premarital assignations by serving the couple breakfast in bed. When the married Ferrer started calling, Audrey took his calls. And it's not like Mel Ferrer was the only married guy falling in love with her. With Roman Holiday about to wrap, Audrey had asked Paramount to buy the film rights to the hit play Sabrina Fair. Not only did Paramount make the purchase, but before Roman Holiday had earned Audrey an Oscar, before it had even opened, the studio swiftly set up Sabrina as an A-list production. Billy Wilder came on as director, and he brought with him his then-favorite star, William Holden, to play the younger of two wealthy brothers who both fall for Sabrina, the newly grown-up, newly sophisticated daughter of one of their servants. Wilder had wanted Cary Grant for the other brother, but Grant turned the part down. Instead, it went to Humphrey Bogart. Fifty-something Bogart knew he wasn't Wilder's first choice— He also knew that Wilder had a relationship with Holden, and privately Bogart worried that he was going to, quote, get fucked as a result. 
Bogart was also exhausted. He came to Sabrina straight from the set of The Cane Mutiny, and Sabrina was the fourth film he had made within a 12-month span. Bogart's insecurities devolved into active resentment when Wilder unthinkingly joked to a journalist that the only reason why Hepburn's character was choosing Bogart's over Holden's in the end was because Bogart made $500,000 a picture, while Holden only made one hundred and twenty-five. dollars a similar joke was even written into the movie. In real life, it was Holden who got the girl, at least for a little while. In the early 1940s, William Holden was told by Columbia that he wouldn't get good roles until his face had more character lines. When World War II started, Holden was the first married star to enlist. His younger brother was shot down over the Pacific. Holden came back with lines in his face, but the studio still wouldn't give him the parts he wanted. Holden ultimately had Montgomery Clift to thank for his career upswing. Billy Wilder had ridden Sunset Boulevard with Clift in mind, but the newly ascendant actor turned it down, leaving comparative Hollywood veteran Holden to pick up the scraps. Sunset Boulevard was a movie about a guy whose career was going nowhere, whose only viable means of support was as a gigolo. This was something Holden knew how to play. After all, he had spent 15 years in Hollywood unable to convince anyone he was anything but a pretty boy. But Sunset Boulevard turned everything around. Holden followed it by reteaming with Wilder on Stalag 17, for which Holden won the Best Actor Oscar. He gave the shortest acceptance speech in history, and later Holden claimed he thought Clift should have won for From Here to Eternity. Humble, if not a bit self-loathing, William Holden was now a legitimate star. But to Bogart? Bill Holden was a dumb prick. And pretentious, too. The kind of guy who made a show of rolling his cigarettes with one hand. Holden was also known as something of a slut. He had an odd reputation of bringing his mistresses and conquests home to the Holden house for dinner with his wife. That wasn't Audrey's style. But she and Holden nonetheless got close on Sabrina's Long Island set. It was an open secret throughout the shoot that they were seeing each other. Wilder sort of encouraged it by frequently inviting Hepburn and Holden to have drinks with him after the shoot day, invitations which pointedly never made it Bogart's way. Bogart was already frustrated by what he perceived as the second-class treatment he was getting on the film. Everyone else was fawning over Audrey Hepburn. Billy Wilder even famously claimed that she would, quote, single-handedly make bosoms a thing of the past. But Bogart wasn't impressed. He thought of Audrey as an amateur who always needed multiple takes to get her lines right and who was wasting the time of the real professionals. And knowing Audrey and Bill were sleeping together, Bogart accused the two of conspiring against him to push Bogart to the sidelines of the film. When you watch Sabrina, it's a little too obvious that Bogart didn't want to be there. He has a little too much fun playing Holden's superior, infusing what's supposed to be a brotherly rivalry without an out contempt. And the romance between Hepburn and Bogart really doesn't work because there's no chemistry between the two, particularly compared to the electricity early in the film between Holden and Hepburn. We get the idea that Sabrina chooses Bogart over Holden primarily because Holden is depicted as a shallow playboy incapable of lasting love. It's left up to Hepburn to carry the bulk of the emotional core of the movie, and she takes that opportunity and runs with it, thus fulfilling... Bogart's fears. He's completely upstaged by the newcomer, 
partially because she's really great and partially because he just doesn't show up. Billy Wilder later insisted that Bogart didn't hate Audrey Hepburn. No one could hate Audrey Hepburn. No, Bogart hated Billy Wilder because he knew Wilder was crazy about both Audrey and Bill. But when it came to Bogart, Wilder didn't really know what to do with him. Bogart wasn't jealous of Hepburn's love for Holden. He was jealous of Wilder's love for both of the other actors in the movie. And out of his professional love for Hepburn, Wilder gave her the greatest gift she got from any director. He figured out how to dress her. Through all of her brief adult life up to that point, Audrey Hepburn had struck everyone who came in contact with her as unusually poised and stylish. She never had had any money to spend, but she seemed to have an innate sense of what looked good on her and how to best showcase her assets while disguising her shortcomings. She was nervous about her height, so she always wore flats. She hated ostentatious makeup and jewelry. Back in her London days, her entire wardrobe had consisted of one blouse, one skirt, one pair of shoes, and 14 scarves. And everyone was knocked out by her. In her first few years in Hollywood, her resources had expanded— but she was still a minimalist. Even after she was starting to become noticed as a stylish girl about town, she admitted that she just had two dinner dresses and slacks and pretty much nothing else. She had developed a rapport with the great costume designer Edith Head on the set of Roman Holiday and was excited to work with Head again on Sabrina. But in trying to solve the problem of how to get the censors to accept the implication of Sabrina's sophistication... Billy Wilder had a bright idea. Sabrina was the story of a girl emerging into a woman, with all that implies. She sweeps into the lives of two older men and turns their worlds upside down with her fresh allure. But the Hayes Code was not much for the depiction of world-upending allure, never mind a girl's implicitly sexual passage into womanhood. Instead of showing her deflowering, Wilder thought, why not make the point visually? By having part of the film feature Hepburn exchanging the girlish costumes of a pigtailed barefoot gammon for womanly European couture. Of course, Edith Head could make a few dresses that looked like they came from France, but Wilder was insistent that the only way to pull off this transformation was to have Hepburn wear real clothes that actually came from France. Edith Head did beautiful work, but that work was synonymous with the new look, the silhouette ushered in by Christian Dior in the late 1940s, which was all about full skirts and fuller busts. That wasn't Audrey, and that wasn't what Wilder wanted for the character of Sabrina. Sabrina had to look like a revelation, a revolution, and that meant she had to wear the real clean lines of new French couture. But Paramount wouldn't pay for real new French couture, so Wilder came up with a scheme. Hepburn would go to Paris herself, shop with her own money from a list handed to her by the production, and then bring the clothes back as though they were just her own wardrobe. This way, Paramount wouldn't have to pay a designer or even give them credit. And so Audrey Hepburn was sent to the Atelier of Hubert de Givenchy with a list. She was required to obtain a dark suit, some blouses, at least two quote-unquote extreme French hats appropriate for the suit, and one, quote, very smart French day dress. 
At this time, designer Hubert de Givenchy was only 26, and he had only launched his own fashion house a year earlier. He was scrambling to get his new collection together when Miss Hepburn was announced as a visitor. When Audrey walked in, Givenchy was taken aback. He had expected the other Miss Hepburn, Catherine. He didn't know who this Miss Hepburn was. And at first, he thought he didn't have time to bother with her. But she begged and pleaded, and Givenchy allowed her to paw through the dresses in his studio and pick out anything from past collections that she thought fit the bill. She basically completely ignored the list given to her by the production and picked out a black cocktail dress, a white evening gown, a slim gray suit, and, the kicker, a white turban. The suit and the turban became the key items, forming the outfit in which the adult Sabrina makes her debut, and is such a sophisticated knockout that Holden's David, who has known Sabrina her whole life, doesn't even recognize her. Hepburn would later call Givenchy, who became a lifelong friend, her great love. Holden used similar language when talking about Hepburn. She was, the actor would later claim, the love of my life. When the Sabrina shoot moved to the Paramount lot, Hepburn and Holden were regularly seen together at L.A. restaurants, and he was known to spend the night at her apartment. They were serious enough that there was talk of him leaving his wife. But there were two problems. Audrey's image may have subverted the typical sex object slash male gaze stuff, but her real, ultimate, personal ambition was to take on the traditional role of mother. Audrey wanted to have Bill's babies. But then Bill admitted to Audrey that a few years earlier, his wife had insisted that he have an irreversible vasectomy, perhaps to minimize the risk of her family breaking up over her husband's infidelity. As soon as Audrey found out that Holden couldn't be a baby daddy, it seems that Hepburn essentially lost interest in him. The other problem was Holden's drinking, a problem which became manifest on a worldwide publicity tour on which Holden embarked immediately after Hepburn rejected him. He was, he said, determined to wipe Audrey out of my mind by screwing a woman in every country I visited. At one point in Thailand, he drunkenly tried to hook up with a girl on a boat on a canal. The boat tipped over, Holden fell into the murky water, and he came back to the hotel and doused himself with alcohol, externally and internally, in what he called an effort to kill any waterborne disease. When Holden came back to L.A. and told this story to Audrey, she wasn't impressed. Oh, Bill, she said, shaking her head sadly. Oh, Bill. When Sabrina wrapped, Audrey packed up her L.A. apartment and moved back to New York, where Mel Ferrer was waiting for her. He had found the way into Audrey's heart, by finding a play in which they both could star, an adaptation of Ondine in which Audrey would play the sea nymph. Mel was still married, but as soon as rehearsals started, he and Audrey moved in together in an apartment in Greenwich Village. Roman Holiday opened in movie theaters in early February 1954. Ondine opened on Broadway two weeks later. Both were incredible successes, transforming Audrey from an up-and-coming starlet into a supernova, the dominant star of the moment on both stage and screen. That spring, she'd win the Oscar for Best Actress for Roman Holiday. The same year, she'd win a Tony for Ondine, making her only the second actress ever to that point to win both an Oscar and a Tony in the same year. 
In September, she'd marry Mel Ferrer, and that same month came the release of Sabrina. Audrey Hepburn was absolutely the girl of the moment as far as fan and fashion magazines were concerned, but Paramount was privately worried that her appeal was still somewhat untested. Had Roman Holiday been a fluke? Or could this new Hepburn really sell a film? In the end, the answer was yes. Sabrina was the third highest grossing film of 1954. But the Sabrina reviews were not all positive, and the focus of much of the criticism was Audrey and her body. Already, there was a backlash to Hepburn's unconventional looks. One critic sneered that the actress had been, quote, costumed to emphasize her lack of what are technically known as secondary sexual characteristics. What critics like this didn't yet understand was the extent to which Hepburn's unusual look, her living proof that the unusual could be sexy, was the key driver of her appeal. The Givenchy costumes for Sabrina had indeed celebrated her thinness, her height, as opposed to Edith Head's Roman holiday costumes, which had treated Audrey's frailty and gangliness as things to disguise. In Sabrina, her skirts and coats are slim, emphasizing her long lines. A number of her outfits in the film are very high-necked, but cut very low in the back, in deep V formations. Almost a parody of typical movie cleavage, and certainly its reverse, both in terms of literal form and in terms of its connotation. I'm thinking of two outfits in particular. There's a leggings and sweater look, which Sabrina claims she's worn in order to ensure that she's so dressed down that Bogart won't be able to take her out to dinner. Except that the sweater is strategically cut open in the back to reveal her swan-like shoulder blades. She tearfully admits in this scene that she thought a makeover was all she needed to be a grown-up. And her vulnerability is heightened by the garment, which gives us the impression that she's dangerously exposed without showing anything like traditional sexualized skin. She's stripped of her armor while still getting to wear actual French couture-inspired armor. And then there's the Givenchy cocktail dress, with its high, straight neckline grazing her shoulder blades and its slashed back plunging into a lace-up waistline. This dress is an embodiment, even an exaggeration, of the complicated duality of Hepburn's appeal wrapped up in one garment. She's a nun in the front and a dominatrix in the back. Hepburn's behavior in the film is entirely chaste. She's allowed to attempt suicide but not have sex. And yet her physical presence on screen is absolutely startling, to the extent that the movie frames her as an unusual sexual object whose point of fascination is her atypicality. Sabrina is almost Hitchcock-level fetishistic. But Hepburn's sexual appeal was subtext. The primary text of her star image at this time was the notion that she was untouched, unmanufactured, a real girl. It was well documented that she'd refused to allow Paramount to cap her teeth or pluck her eyebrows, and that the director asked her to wear falsies in Roman Holiday, and she replied with no small amount of exasperation that she was, in fact, wearing falsies. Women, particularly young women, responded to this idea that Audrey was just Audrey. The idea that an actress was putting forth her personal identity, and an idiosyncratic one at that, was a break away from the prevailing idea of a female icon heavily styled for the male gaze. Audrey presented an image that wasn't about what men wanted women to look like, 
It was about a woman styling herself to please herself. And that was liberating. Before, words like liberating were in common use to describe the ideas about beauty and selfhood that one woman could broadcast to another. Maybe this insurgent potential is what the negative reviews of Audrey's movies or of Audrey's body picked up on. Maybe this was deemed a problem by Paramount or some entity, because after Audrey starred in an adaptation of War and Peace opposite Ferrer and Henry Fonda, her next film was Funny Face, in which she played a consumerism-denouncing beatnik intellectual who was made over into a fashionista by the love and desire of a photographer played by Fred Astaire. So let's recap. The actress who just three years earlier had helped to introduce a new ideal of womanhood that was about individual expression in defiance of a male gaze, now, with funny face, was shown happily capitulating to a makeover by a man who was not just as a photographer the human embodiment of the male gaze, but was also about a thousand years her senior, a man who hadn't been young for two generations, an ancient vampire sucking up Audrey's youth and vitality, and eliminating anything about her that could be tied into a young generation's new, establishment-challenging values. At least you couldn't say that Audrey Hepburn wasn't versatile. Funny Face was, like Sabrina, a makeover movie, and the idea that Hepburn was a girl like you or like someone you might know who could be transformed into something rare with the right clothes had become an important part of her persona. It was absolutely key to the movie which really cemented the public idea of Audrey Hepburn, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Released in 1961, Tiffany's did the ultimate magic trick, turning Audrey into a call girl without sacrificing any of her essentially innocent appeal. Breakfast at Tiffany's brought further out into the open what Sabrina had only hinted at, that Audrey was an inherently good girl, well-meaning and even pure in her way, but that sex is also a part of her life. And also, at this point, we're so used to watching Audrey try on new identities with new dresses without losing herself, that it's easy to watch her as a party girl hustling tips for the powder room and read it as just another innocuous game of dress-up. Tiffany's had to seem innocuous. The censors were still in effect in 1961, but its impact was subversive. Gloria Steinem has talked about relating to Hepburn's Holly Golightly. The feminist pioneer even copped to having copied the character's blonde-streaked hair. But for Steinem and surely other women, the inspiration wasn't purely superficial. Holly was a girl determined to control her own destiny. She earned her freedom by selling herself, but she had to own her sexuality in order to sell it. Compromised though it might be, there is a certain kind of radical potential to Holly's fierce independence. And for a woman of the 60s or 70s who desired her own independence and who wanted that freedom without giving up her femininity, Holly's struggle to avoid being put in a cage while at the same time allowing love in her life must have seemed familiar. It still rings true. But of course, it is the superficial aspects of the character that essentially went viral. The divorced-from-context, static image of Hepburn in that movie, with the black cocktail dress, the costume jewels, the foot-long cigarette holder, the rhinestone tiara, that has become a meme. A shorthand for a certain adolescent idea of grown-up glamour, which allows Audrey Hepburn to exist as a visual concept, 
completely separate from her actual movies. A young female journalist who interviewed me this year told me that she had a poster of Hepburn and Breakfast Activities on her bedroom wall, even though she had never seen the movie. And I'm sure she's not the only one. So there's no question that Audrey's image was and is accessible, to the point that it's become indelible. But accessible is not the same thing as natural or even easily attainable. We're talking about a slightly taller than average woman who maintained a 20-inch waist for 40 years, in part thanks to the lasting effects of wartime malnutrition, and in part thanks to discipline. She would say things like, My mother taught me to stand straight, sit erect, use discipline with wine and sweets, and to only smoke six cigarettes a day. Today, Audrey's embraced as a madcap urban princess, the original Manic Pixie dream girl. But during the height of her fame, she seemed to regard femininity as nothing romantic, and certainly not about her personal luxury or pleasure, but about reining oneself in. When asked for what advice she'd give young women, she said, You have to look at yourself objectively. Analyze yourself like an instrument. You have to be absolutely frank with yourself. All good advice, perhaps but maybe easier prescribed than done. For some of us, the realer girl ideal put forth by Audrey Hepburn not only seems like a still completely unattainable fantasy, but her piousness about her own discipline can make us feel bad about ourselves. Billy Wilder's wife, Audrey Wilder, put it pretty succinctly when she said that Hepburn, quote, through no fault of hers, makes me feel fat and tacky. Also, I suddenly realized that I probably drink and smoke too much. The fact is, Audrey Hepburn was and is beyond parallel as a Hollywood icon of girlhood, or maybe more precisely, of holding on to the spirit of girlhood, holding on to all of the stuff that threatens to slip away once a young lady starts thinking about what men think of her, and carrying that spirit into adult womanhood. And that's great. The world needs her. But now that Hepburn isn't new anymore... Now that everything she represented has been in the culture for 60 years, there's the danger that what's taken away from her is not the general notion that non-traditional body types are beautiful and personal interpretations of style are super cool. The danger is that Audrey Hepburn becomes to girls today what Elizabeth Taylor was to girls of the 50s, an impossible standard to which girls feel bad if they don't match up. For every couple of girls who look at Audrey Hepburn and are inspired to embrace themselves as they are, maybe there's another girl who looks at Hepburn and feels less than. Because she can't use discipline with wine and sweets. And that, plus the existence of girls who can, will always make her feel a little bit fat and tacky. In other words, we need Audrey Hepburns. But we also need Audrey Wilders. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. You Must Remember This is written, hosted, and edited by Karina Longworth. That's me. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. And please do follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night. Girls don't want to play like that. Just want to talk to the boys.